This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Master Brewers Bookstore, where you can find must-have titles like the Practical Handbook for the Specialty Brewer, Beer Packaging, Conference Proceedings, and more. Visit mbaa.com store to build your brewing library and make better beer. It would be nice for more small brewers to go through the effort to do some minor simple experiments to make sure that what they think they know, they actually know. And we just looked for commonalities as a way to sort of see if there were any sort of silver bullets that led to good browse efficiency. This week on the show, how a simple case study conducted at 35 breweries nearly 10 years ago can inform your process to increase efficiency and make better beer. And there's really only one man for the job when it comes to telling this story. So uh, hi, Matt. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Van Havoc, and I'm with Gigantic Brewing Company in beautiful Portland, Oregon. You gave a great presentation a couple of years ago during a Master Brewers District Northern Cal meeting in Chico. Let's listen to a clip from that before we get started. The other thing is being inefficient is not artisanal. Um, there's an enormous, it pisses me off so much in the industry, there's so much of like, I used six pounds of barrel of hops, I'm so amazing, and you're just like, you're just being inefficient. And the same thing with, if you're not doing a good job of house efficiency, you're not doing your job. It's not artisanal. You don't get to hide behind that, oh, I'm an artist crap. Um, and the other thing is, uh, it's easy to do, so there's really no excuse. Van, there are some brewers out there right now thinking, hey, I've got a 10-barrel system. I'm too small to be concerned with efficiency. How do you respond to that? That's, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, are you a brewer? Do you want to do your job correctly? Do you care about what you do? We should always be trying to do the best job we can. I think that's what you do as a brewer. Um, and, and frankly, by working on brew house efficiency, I think you make your beer better. I think you're paying it to any time you're paying more attention, you're making better beer. Before we get too far, why don't you take a minute to explain what exactly is brew house efficiency? Okay, so really, brew house efficiency is sort of a standardized measure of how efficient you are at extracting sugar from malt. It's really what it is. Um, it's really an efficiency measure that's looking at how good your mashing and loudering uh, procedures are. It really doesn't have anything to do with boil. It really doesn't have anything to do with uh, racking or packaging efficiency or anything like that. It's literally just talking about how much sugar are you pulling out of malt. That's really what it is. In terms of brewhouse efficiency, what seems like maybe a small improvement, 82 to 90%, in other words, going from 82% of sugar extracted to 90% of sugar extracted, even on something as small as a 10-barrel system, even totally normal gravity beers could result in up to, say, 70 pounds of malt 
uh, difference for brew. In other words, you could use 70 pounds less malt. And that's add that up over a year's brewing, and you're talking about, you know, potentially tons of malt, which aside from the cost savings is just, frankly, it's just being responsible. So what do you need to know to calculate brew house efficiency? Okay, there's sort of four basic things you need to, four basic data points, I guess you could say, uh, to calculate brew house efficiency that are easily found. One is simply the uh, pounds of each malt used in a batch of beer. The next one is a number available for your maltster called the coarse grind as is extract percentage. The next one is, you should all know this, the gravity of the wort you just made in degrees Play-Doh that has to be read at 20 degrees C or 68 Fahrenheit. And then the volume of wort that you just uh, collected, also 20 C, 68 Fahrenheit. Just those four things. That's all you really need. The biggest question everyone has is, what's the coarse grind as is percentage? This is, again, something available from your maltster. It would be on your malt analysis sheet, or sometimes they're often available online. What it is, is it's the percentage by weight of extract obtained from malt with a coarse grind in a laboratory mash. Coarse grind means the kind of grind you would use actually brewing, as opposed to a really, really fine grind for a lab. Normally for base malt, your coarse grind as its percentage is in the 75 to 80% range. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the one that you sort of have to uh, uh, go look up somewhere, but e- easily available. And again, you want the coarse grind as is because that's what mimics what you're doing in brewing. You do not want the fine grind as is. You don't want the coarse grind dry basis or fine grind dry basis, coarse grind as is. And then to calculate brew house efficiency, there's frankly a bunch of math. Um, but what you really are trying to figure out is you're trying to figure out how much sugar you're collecting uh, by weight per barrel of wort that you're collecting. Uh, this is a little bit difficult to do over a podcast because there's some algebraic math, but uh, suffice it to say, uh, if you were to uh, look up the, pre- the slides from the presentation I gave, this would be slide six. Um, but you calculate extract per barrel by this funny little method. You take 259, which is roughly the weight of water uh, per barrel. You add your uh, degrees Play-Doh of the wort that you gathered, again, measured at 20 degrees C. Multiply that sum by degrees Play-Doh, again, and divide by 100. Uh, That gets you extract per barrel. Uh, If you multiply your extract per barrel times the barrels of wort you collected, the second Uh, data point that you need, you'll get the total extract. In other words, you get a measure of the total amount of sugar that you pulled out of your mash tun. Math, 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 you end up with a number. (laughs) All right, very good. And you've got a a brew house efficiency spreadsheet that you've shared with a bunch of brewers, and that spreadsheet was posted to the Master Brewers community. So listeners uh, can find a link to that in the description of this episode at masterbrewerspodcast.com. Now, about 10 years ago, when you were at Rock Bottom, the 35 or so locations were asked to calculate and report brew house efficiency. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so the, one of the interesting things about working at Rock Bottom was the fact that, as mentioned, we had 35 breweries. So design an experiment in a simple way, and you can sort of use it as a, as a cross-brewery uh, uh, experimenting facility, strangely. 
we realized pretty quickly that we had breweries, some of which were doing very good uh, in the brew house efficiency and some of which weren't doing so great. So we simply, I, I developed that brew house efficiency calculator, simple spreadsheet, really easy to use, available through MBA or from me. And basically had every brewery in rock bottom go through. I think we made them do two months of brewing, make sure they had at least 20 brews through the, through the calculator and determine what their average efficiencies were. And uh, what we found out was surprising. <clears throat> and that was that about a quarter of all the breweries at rock bottom had brew house efficiencies at or below 82% efficiency. Don't ask me why 82% was a break point. It just happened to be a break point. And about a third of the breweries were about 90% and above in efficiency. Um, there's a couple of things I want to say about this briefly is this was rock bottom breweries in about 2009 or 10, somewhere around in there. And uh, say what you want about the company. Uh, we had a training program. Every brewer who became a head brewer had gone through uh, working at a facility that was going to be very similar to the one that they were going to be brewing in themselves. Uh, training typically was on the order of 18 months to two years. Uh, at the end of that period, you would go to a finishing brewer, brewery, either working for myself or another brewer who had a lot of experience and we'd kind of check you off. So this isn't just people running blind, you know, I've homebrewed for a while and look at me, I have a brewery or even people that were production brewers and thought they knew what they were doing. This, there was training involved here. But still, 25% of the breweries were, frankly, not doing very well. Uh, so my contention is, I'm almost willing to, actually, I am willing to bet money that a quarter of the breweries out there have pretty poor brewhouse efficiencies, just based on kind of statistics, you know. Um, but a third of them were really good. So we just did something really simple. We just looked at uh, various parameters of uh, mashing and loudering that those uh, one third of breweries that were efficient, what were they doing? And we just looked for commonalities as a way to sort of see if there were any sort of silver bullets that led to that led to uh, good brew house efficiency. This is also important to know that uh, uh, all these breweries were not identical. Um, uh, Rock Bottom bought brew houses from various manufacturers. I believe there were four different uh, brew house manufacturers. Um, none of them had rakes. These are all V-wire screen uh, mash tons. And the uh, uh, mash volumes varied between 8, 10, 12, and 15 barrel, all single infusion systems. So pretty common out there in the small brewery world. I know there's a lot of people that are growing right now. But there's an awful lot of breweries still in that 15 barrel and under uh, 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 brew house size. There's probably another 2,000 breweries in that size range since you gave this talk. I, I think there's like 3,000. And I'm not joking about this. I think there's nearly 3,000 more breweries since this first talk, yeah. since this talk was first given. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, it is, it is totally crazy. And uh, I know all the breweries that you know, have 30 barrel systems and are blowing up to, you know, 40,000 barrels are the ones that get all the attention. But if you look at the statistics, it's still shocking how many breweries are not even doing a thousand barrels. So all those people that supply it to, you know, it's a huge number of breweries. My, my brewery, we have a 15 barrel uh, single infusion brew house. We do four to 5,000 barrels a year. All this still applies to me at 5,000 barrels and under, you know? 
So Van, this was a tremendous opportunity to improve profitability, sustainability, and to make better beer. How did you tackle this project? There's four big factors that really affect brew house efficiency. Um, one, I'm just going to call mash parameters, uh, which is sort of the thickness or thinness of how you're mashing. Uh, the pH of your mash is going to matter. Um, uh, how thicker, or sorry, your, uh, uh, how you set your grind on your mill is very important. And then the last one, not surprisingly, is your actual loudering technique. So the interesting thing we found out when we sort of uh, had these 30% of breweries, so about 10 breweries, let's just say, and we looked at what uh, was similar or different, we found that all these mash parameters, you know, how low uh, or high your mash temperatures were, or how thick or how thin your mash uh, was, we found it had almost no uh, correlatable impact on brew house efficiency. Um, people that were tended to mash really low in the uh, uh, 65 to 70 C range, you know, right about 65 C, 149 Fahrenheit. They were getting about the same extract as people who were in the upper ranges, even though you, even though technically a higher mash temperature, temperature should lead to higher extract. It just wasn't meaningful. It just didn't matter. Uh, same thing with how thick or thin your uh, mash is. We had breweries like mine that were had very thick mashes, two to one liquor to grist ratios, which you would expect a lower extract from. But our uh, extracts were very comparable to people with uh, liquor to grist ratios closer to three to one. So really, uh, the conclusion from that was really simple. Make the beer you want to make. Use uh, the thickness or thinness of your mash and your mash temperatures to get the rate of attenuation or the fermentability that you want out of your wort. Uh, I'm not going to tell you to change the way you're brewing to get the flavors you want to get. Uh, that's, it's just not important. Uh, maybe if you're making a million barrels a year, it is, but it sure isn't for us. Uh, so I'm not going to step on your creative toes here. Now, when we get to mash pH, mash pH really does matter. Um, and uh, I would hope everyone would know that. Um, and what you see, what we saw uh, in our experiments was that there was a really noticeable and correlatable difference uh, in brew house efficiency when pH was out of spec. Uh, so what we would see uh, uh, at the rock bottom in Portland, and mind you, uh, the water in Portland is incredibly soft, just unbelievably soft, softer than Pilsen. Uh, and we actually have an acidic uh, pH of our water here. So when we were making things like porter with a lot of dark malt, we would get a, a mash pH. It was pretty low. I mean, we would sometimes have like a 4.95 or a 5.0 uh, mash pH, which is totally out of spec. And we would see an absolutely correlatable 2% decrease in brew house efficiency. Um, <clears throat> so work on your, work on your pHs. Uh, it not only, of course, helps with uh, uh, brew house efficiency, but it's going to help you down the line with protein coagulation and clarity. Or for those of you who hate that, screw up your pH and have cloudy beer. That's fine. With me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it's also going to affect the fermentability of your wort, your yeast health. It's going to affect, affect how you can clarify your beer. It affects so much stuff. So please work on your pHs. But suffice to say, if your pH isn't correct at the mash point, you are going to lose uh, brew house efficiency. Coming up. In other words, it was shocking. We had everyone do their, we sent out sieves to everyone. We had everyone, all 35 breweries, 
uh, calculate uh, their grist percentages. And it was, it was just staring us right in the face. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Districts Michigan and St. Louis both meet March 15th. The 2018 Eastern Technical Conference is March 23rd and 24th in Atlantic City. The D-System Keg Valves Safety and QA Webinar is March 27th. District New England meets in Rhode Island April 6th. District Texas meets in Shreveport the weekend of April 6th. The third annual District Southeast Crawfish Boil is April 7th. I went last year and it was a ton of fun. The Master Brewers Board of Governors meets April 12th. District Carolinas meets at Holy City April 14th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Course starts April 15th in Madison. District St. Louis meets April 19th at Four Hands Brewery. And the 57th District Caribbean Convention is April 19th through the 22nd in St. Lucia. View the full counter events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Really the most interesting thing that we found was how important the setting of your mill is. And this is a good example, in my opinion, of where trying to set up a good experiment, going in with an open mind and just running things and finding, seeing the results uh, and then interpreting the results gives you better results than sitting around and convincing yourself that you're right about everything. So the first thing you need to do is you need to be able to have a, a consistent way to check the grind on your mill. And frankly, this re- the, you, in order to do this, you really need to get a set of uh, 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 sieve pans. Sieve pans are readily available in the open market. I buy mine from McMaster Car. Um, you can go to the uh, ASBC, I think it's ASBC Method Malt 4. Uh, look that up, and it will tell you the 100% proper way to to uh, to sieve test your malt. Uh, and we went ahead and did that. We got a series of pans. Normally, you're supposed to use uh, six different sieves to test your malt. Uh, by number, they're number 10, 14, 18, 30, 60, and 100. And then you would tech- usually put them on a mechanical shaker for a certain amount of time. Again, it's all in ASBC. and uh, Uh, run through but that was kind of a lot of money so we cut it down to just using 14 18 60 three sieves and the bottom pan so it cost us about 250 dollars i think the price has gone up since then i think it's under 300 bucks um to get all those uh sieves and pans and you do a real simple test the simple test is you take about 100 to 130 grams of grist it's about a cup of grist and then you put a rubber ball on each sieve layer. You stack the sieves up from coarsest at the top to finest at the bottom and then the pan underneath and you put a rubber ball in there. Amazingly, the, even the rubber balls are available from McMaster Car. They have everything. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's, it's amazing. Uh, and uh, you sort of lock it up uh, and then you start to shake it. And this sounds like the easiest thing in the world, uh, but by the end of it, you're going to, you're going to think you went through an Olympic event. You put the pans on the table. You shake them side to side, about shoulder width for 15 seconds. You tap them a couple times, like sort of picking them up and just popping them on the table. 
And then you shake back and forth about 18 inches for 15 seconds, tap it, left, right, tap, back, forth, tap. Keep doing this for three minutes. The first 45 seconds, you're sort of thinking, this is kind of fun. The last 45 seconds, all you can think is, oh, God, when is three minutes going to be over? It's miserable. <laughs> but, but you really only need to do this test. Uh, for us, we have a silo. Every time we get a new silo fill, we'll, we'll test them all. Uh, and really, the good news is, is for the most part, once you get your, si- your mill dialed in, you rarely have to make changes, it turns out. But anyway, you, uh, you uh, sort out your grist this way. You do the shaking test. And then you'll, your grist will have been separated out into four fractions. There'll be three fractions on the sieves and one in the pan. Uh, you very, very carefully weigh each fraction. Uh, and then calculate a percentage of the total. Uh, and uh, we found something really, really interesting. We found out that every single one of the breweries, every single one of them that had good brew house efficiencies had a very coarse grind. And absolutely no brewery with a finer grind could do better than, say, 85, 86%. Maybe it was 89%. In other words, it was shocking. We had everyone do their, we sent out sieves to everyone. We had everyone, all 35 breweries, uh, calculate uh, their grist percentages. And it was, it was just staring us right in the face. Uh, coarse grind. Coarse grind is what you want. Look, if you're working on a brand new, you know, uh, Hoopman or, uh, you know, Braucon, beautiful German system, all engineered. Don't listen to what I'm saying right now. This talk isn't for you anyway. I'm talking about all the small breweries with essentially 19th century British breweries that we're all running, which are perfectly good. Uh, you really need to have a coarse grind. It's, it's, really, it's really remarkable. Um, how coarse am I talking about? <clears throat> what you want, and this is my new recommendation, is you only, want, you only need to buy, in my opinion, a number 14 sieve. If you buy a number 14 sieve, a lid, a single rubber ball, and a pan, it's going to cost you, I think, under 100 bucks or maybe right about 100 bucks. You want to set your mill such that you get between 68 and 71% of the malt stays on top of that sieve. In other words, the vast majority doesn't even go through a number 14 sieve. Number 14 sieve was the coarsest sieve that we used. So you're talking about very, very coarse. You're talking about a grist where the, your mill has just broken open the kernel. If you were to look at my mash after mashing and loudering, you would look at the top of the, the mash bed when everything's emptied out, and you would say, Van, you're doing a terrible job. There are so many old maids there. And then you could carefully pick up that malt on top. And if you would flip over half those old maids, you'd see that there was a, there was a crack literally just a crack through the malt that's enough to get liquid into uh the giant starch packet that the endosperm of uh of the the malt kernel is you don't need to turn this thing to flour you merely need to access it now that being said i'm not advocating that all of the grist in the ton is that is that grind i'm just saying that you'll see a small layer at the top that looks like a lot of old maids underneath that it's everything's everything's broken open uh just kind of burst apart a lot of the kernels are frankly only quartered is pretty common but that's kind of the 
that's kind of the uh, the sort of mill setting that you're looking for. There's so many breweries in the United States now, and so many of them are helpful to each other. Heck, if if there's a bunch of tiny breweries around you and everyone's really strapped for cash, you know, pull your money together just by one sieve. You don't need it every day. You just need it to initially set your mill and check it occasionally. You could have eight breweries in an area sending, you know, saving or sharing, excuse me, one, one sieve. Uh, we've got a sieve here. We've got breweries all over Portland that are like, hey, Van, can I borrow your sieve? And I don't care. You know, share it. It's no big deal. Okay, cool. Well, I guess um, let's talk about laudering technique and how that's related to the mill to the mill gap setting. Yeah, absolutely. So then, the last thing that really matters in terms of brewhouse efficiency, not surprising, is your laudering technique because your laudering technique really affects how liquid flows through the mash bed. And brewhouse efficiency really is actually when you really get down to it, it's about Sort of two things. One, making sure that the enzymes present in the malt are able to completely sacrifice all the starch that's in the barley. So that's where the pH matters. And it's where getting your, uh, 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 your mill setting right really matters. And the second part is really about having consistent flow th- of liquid through your mash bed. Uh, that's really the way that you draw out all the sugar. You need to A, convert it, and then B, draw it out. That's, that's your job. So the way that you have good loudering technique is, number one, you have a loose, permeable mash bed. Crucial. The second thing, you need really even bed consistency. If you have different densities within your mash bed, that's going to be a problem. You want it all consistent. You want an even bed depth, just a nice level bed. And then the last thing is uh, you need to have proper runoff speed. Um, It's shocking. People screw up all of this stuff. Um, But we're not. Good brewing practice is is actually very, very simple. So the one thing you really need to know is this fancy mathematical equation called Darcy's Law. You can either... Find it in the slides in uh, the presentation, which you can link to. This is slide number 26. Or you can uh, just look it up on Wikipedia because that's what I did. Going back to the rock bottom case study, you were able to make some simple changes that resulted in substantial improvements to brew house efficiency. Give us some examples of those. Okay. So here's the funny thing. I've, I've given this talk a few times and... Up to this point in this talk, I can sort of look out at at the crowd and I can almost see people like being really, really skeptical. They're so convinced, you know, that that they're doing everything right and their really fine grind is just the way to go. And what's this balding idiot ginger up on on stage or whatever? What are they saying? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we I, I have case studies. So uh, one simple case study is uh, we had a brewery at uh, we had a brew house efficiency measured at about 86%. I mean, really not that bad. 86% is pretty good for a small brewery. But his louder time was uh, 120 minutes. And the brewer did some things that I think a lot of small brewers do. They really stirred the mash a lot 
during mash in and then right before they would start forlauf they would really stir that bed up again and what that does is it sort of beats a little bit of entrained air out of your mash and it also helps settle the grist together so you're he was really tightening his mash beds um all we did uh was we said look just stop stirring the hell out of the mash bed just stir it enough just to get a consistent uh density of uh your mash bed and don't restart before forlauf uh first mash he was like wow hey look my beds aren't tight anymore they're a lot looser uh and uh he uh saw his uh brass efficiencies increase from 86 to 89% again measurable uh and his louder times decreased to 90 minutes um interesting thing about a 90 minute louder time if you look at really small breweries they tend to run 90 minute louder times if you look at really big breweries they tend to run 90 minute louder times um Look, the fastest you should ever be running louder is at 60 minutes, and you better have really good equipment that's really designed to do that. If you're small, please just run at 90. If you're not running at 90, if it's slower than 90, something is wrong. Your beds are too tight. Your, your, your grind is too, too fine. You're doing something. You should be able to louder in 90 minutes. I mean, that's, that's, there's no reason not to be. The last thing we did is we just uh, reset the mill to a more coarse grind. I'm only going to talk about a number 14 sieve because I think that's the only sieve you need for a small brewery and it saves you money. Initially, they had 59% of their grist on a number 14 sieve and we just changed that to 71%. So that's a pretty big change. Uh, and efficiency went from 89 to 90.5%. So what did we do? We changed the mill and made the guy work less and less hours. And he went from 86 to 90 and a half percent. That's a win across the board. I don't think anyone wants to work more for less. Um, another example, we had someone getting 84 and a half percent brewhouse efficiency, and they're running really fast uh, louder times. They're running 60 minute louder times, really trying to get out of there. What we did is we had them uh, uh, slow uh, their initial louder speed just for about the first third of louder. And then resume back to his normal, uh, his previous louder speed. Basically, running your louder speed too fast initially, um, if you look at Darcy's law, what's really happening is you are sort of, by forcing the speed to be too fast, you're forcing your flow rate to go too fast, which essentially results in a differential pressure increase. And you're compacting your bed. Um, by slowing down a little bit, you allow the bed to not compact. And then once the viscosity is dropped, you can speed it up to where you were before and you'll get, you'll go back to getting nice, good flow rates. Um, uh, and then we, uh, reset the mill to, uh, the coarse grind that we recommended. Uh, he went from 84 and a half percent to 90%, uh, with 90 minute louder times. Sure. I'm making the guy stand around for 30 minutes, but. Um, as we used to joke, that just gives you more time to go hang out with the staff and make friends with people. Uh, again, these were brew pubs. Uh, if you're in a production brewery, I'm sure there are things you have to do because all of us do. And the really remarkable case is this one. We had someone at 82% brew house efficiency. Beds were really tight. 
they're really uneven. Uh, the mash beds would sometimes, at, you know, during the middle of louder, sometimes part of the bed would sink and part of it would sort of um, stay more permeable. Uh, it was just sort of a nightmare situation. Again, initial grind was at 59% on a number 14 sieve. We changed that up to about 67%. Uh, and that is literally all we did. That's it. And the mash beds loosened up. Uh, they evened out. We didn't see any changes during louder. Uh, and uh, brass efficiency jumped to 89%. We literally just changed. That's it. Change grind. Uh, uh, 7% increase in brass efficiency. Um, so, you know, it, it, it doesn't take much in, in some real way. And when you think about it, I, I think people are really skeptical about this because what they're thinking is they're thinking, but Van, how can I get good brewhouse efficiency if, if the liquid in my mash can't easily access all of those sugars? If I'm not in a really thin situation with a fine grind, how can the sugar come out of there? But what, everyone else is for, what everyone's forgetting is they're forgetting about the basic physics of osmosis. As long as you get that kernel saturated with moisture, even if you've just barely cracked it open, got the hard outer bit of that kernel to open up such that liquid can get in there and saturate that kernel, even if it doesn't seem like you could possibly get anything out of there. Making that kernel saturated with moisture allows the enzyme to convert starch to sugar. Once that's happened, the sugar is small enough to, to migrate across cell walls. And that's really what's in there. It's just a bunch of tiny little cells. And so as long as you set up a situation where the density of sugar inside the kernel is higher than the density of sugar outside the kernel, over time, the sugar will migrate, even if it's at the very, very, very corners of that kernel, it will migrate to the next cell, to the next cell, to the next cell, to the next cell, and finally out into the work. You've just got to give it time. It's just osmosis. And this happens faster and faster as you continue louder because, of course, your viscosity uh, and therefore the sugar content of your sparge water is decreasing. Um, so initially, you're right. You're not getting at all that sugar in there. But you've got 90 minutes to get this sugar to migrate through the kernel. Um, if you don't believe me, I mean, honestly, take a couple kernels of grain, just barely crack them open uh, and put them in 149 degree water. But just take like a cup of water and take like, I don't know, five kernels and just barely crack them open and dump them in there, you know? And then at the end, carefully pour the water out and then taste the kernels, see if they're sweet. They're not. All of that's been drawn into your, you know, cup of water. It's just osmosis. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't take much. The, one, the other thing that I'd like everyone to get out of this is really that it would be nice for more small brewers to go through the effort to do some minor simple experiments to make sure that what they think they know, they actually know. Um, this is just an example where we went through an experiment and found out something that is frankly maybe against basic intuition about how to get good brewhouse efficiency. But I, I think there's an awful lot of anecdotal uh, belief out there that results in behavior that I think is potentially really not right. I think there's a lot of stuff that people are doing with respect to extracting hop aroma and flavor that I don't frankly believe. 
And I've rarely seen anyone do legitimate side-by-side work to determine if what they think is correct is correct. I mean, my big example on that, mash hopping. I have never, ever, ever seen anyone uh, do a good mash hopping side-by-side that was able to show me that it did anything, really at all, really at all. I've done it. I've done it in my brewery, and I don't believe it in the least bit. I think it's brewers are putting hops in the mash tun and it smells great. And they think, God, that must be doing something. Look how much it's, or smell how great it is, you know? But that's just one example. There's a ton of stuff out there that if we would just stop thinking we were such a bunch of geniuses and every new thing we did was right, because look how great it worked and actually do the work, you know, I think we'd be moving forward a lot better. That's my plug. My plug is for science. All right, good. And when you do those studies, make sure you document them and uh, bring them yes. forward to the technical quarterly so that they can be shared with uh, your fellow brewers. Yeah, a- absolutely. Absolutely. Talk about them. Get them to MBA. Uh, present them at your local meeting. It doesn't really take much to write up a nice paper and uh, get it published in the TQ. Um, and those are really, really valuable things. They're valuable for the whole community. That was Van Havoc here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you'd like to get your hands on Van's spreadsheet or watch his full presentation, simply type Van into the search bar at community.mbaa.com or click the direct link in the description of this episode. As you all know, Master Brewers is a nonprofit organization. You probably also realize that it's expensive to produce shows like the Master Brewers Podcast every week. If you're a vendor, please consider sponsoring the Master Brewers Podcast. It'll cost you less than you probably spent to sponsor that last district meeting, and your message will reach the thousands of brewers who tune in each week. Click contact from masterbrewerspodcast.com to learn more.